Welcome to another episode of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast. And if my maths is right, this is episode 35 and we're still going strong. Every fortnight, the podcast is an opportunity to talk about new and sometimes older papers from the journal, asking authors to explain their work and expand on their ideas. There's hours of content in our back catalogue, so be sure to check it out, but not before listening to today's episode on Neiman Pixie disease. So in this episode of the podcast, we're turning our focus to a condition we've yet to talk about, Neiman Pick disease type C. We've one new and one slightly older paper, both looking at treatment in NPC disease. And it's a pleasure to welcome a member of our editorial committee and a Neiman Pick expert, Dr. Mark Patterson, and from the Institute of Clinical Science for LSD in Hockheim, Germany, Dr. Eugen Mengel. Mark and Eugen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, I've made no secret of the fact that I'm not a metabolist, so perhaps you could humour me by beginning with a very simple description of Neiman Pick and particularly type C. Yes, perhaps I could take that one, James. Uh, Neiman Pick C is an autosomal recessive lysosomal disorder, but it's an atypical disorder in that neither of the products of the two genes which are associated with this disorder is an enzyme. 95% of patients have mutations in the NPC1 gene, which encodes a very large multi-pass transmembrane protein that's expressed in the late uh, endosome and the lysosome, which interacts with a smaller protein, the NPC2 protein, uh, which is mutated in about 5% of patients. The problem is one of trafficking of large molecules, particularly unesterified cholesterol, but there's accumulation within lysosomes of not only unesterified cholesterol, but also glycosphingolipids, particularly glucosylceramide and GM2 gangliocide. The consequence of this disturbed metabolism is in the perinatal period, quite severe visceral disease, which may be lethal, but throughout the rest of the lifespan, an insidiously progressive neurodegenerative disorder the main burden of which falls on the cerebellum, causing ataxia, dysarthria, and dysphagia, eventually progressive dementia. Perhaps as many as half the patients will experience seizures. Uh, between a third and a quarter will have a very characteristic sleep disorder called gelastic cataplexy, where there's a sudden loss of muscle tone evoked by a humorous stimulus. But the most characteristic physical finding is the vertical supranuclear saccadic palsy, uh, which is very easily missed. It, it can be a subtle sign early on, but it's a very important clue to the diagnosis. Until recently, we have not had effective therapy for this disorder. You mentioned that you can have an antenatal presentation, there's a severe infantile form. There are, you can see this presenting later in life as well, can't you? Absolutely. Uh, the oldest patient I personally diagnosed was 65. She had presented after her last, what turned out to be her last pregnancy in her early 40s with tremor and uh, had quite full-blown disease by the time I saw her. But again, it's a disorder which in the past has not been very well recognized, particularly in adults. But increasingly, our adult colleagues are recognizing this disorder and the proportion of patients with adult onset is increasing as a result. Yeah, the, the manifestation can occur at any age. My oldest patient is uh, older than 60 at, at the time of presentation. And what's also uh, remarkable that in adult manifestation or a late onset manifestation, psychiatric symptoms can precede uh, the neurological symptoms. 
And so files, it's in Europe, psychiatric disorder. Well, I think that's something that's come across in a number of our discussions recently about the importance of considering metabolic disease, even as patients age, and it's remembering it's not just diseases of children. Um, this is a podcast that came about because of the recent paper that the two of you worked on on the use of uh, arimaclonal in Neiman-Pixi disease. But there's already a treatment license to use in Europe. Mark, I recall working on a visual abstract on this topic last year. Um, what is Miglostat and what's its role in this condition? Uh, Miglostat is uh, an amino sugar which acts as uh, an inhibitor of glucosyl ceramide synthase amongst actually a number of other enzymes, that particular function inhibits the synthesis of the higher order of the higher order glycosphingolipids, uh, which we know accumulate in Neiman-Pixi. So that includes GM2 ganglioside, glucosyl ceramide, and so on. It may well have other actions as well, including perhaps some chaperone function. Uh, but having said that, it was originally studied by Fran Platt and Terry Butters at Oxford in the 1990s when it was known by its chemical name, N-butyl deoxynogirimycin from Lake Nojiri in Japan, where it occurs naturally. And uh, uh, there were studies subsequently in a number of disorders, including Gaucher disease, and it is approved as a therapy for Gaucher disease worldwide as an alternative to enzyme replacement therapy. But the work in Neiman-Pixi began uh, really with uh, Steve Walkley's laboratory at Albert Einstein in New York, where they showed delay and onset of symptoms and increased lifespan in the Neiman-Pick mouse model after the mice were fed uh, this drug beginning at weaning. Uh, this led us to pursue a human study, and the control trial was published in 2007 in The Lancet and did show evidence of slowing of disease progression. Last year, thanks to the cooperation of a number of international groups, together with the registry which had been set up under the auspices of the EMA in Europe, we were able to gather together a very large cohort of patients, more than 600 in total, and demonstrate, I think, quite convincingly, that depending on whether or not one looked at progression from date of diagnosis or date of neurological onset, that there was an increase in lifespan between five and 10 years. So this is not a cure for the disease, but I think we actually have quite a large body of evidence now supporting an effect in slowing progression. And this uh, tallies in with a study that was done at the National Institutes of Health, where in the course of their natural history study, they followed a number of patients who were taking Miglustat off-label in the United States compared to a group of patients who were not and showed stabilization of swallowing function over a period of, of three years on average. So, again, I think there's a body of evidence suggesting that Miglustat has a role in this disease. It's not a cure, but I think most people in the field feel convinced that it does have a role to play and that it does slow disease progression, which is important uh, in a disorder of this sort. But then, obviously, this is a treatment that's been approved in Europe. Europe's got the EMA I'm in England. I like to think I'm in Europe as well, but we've got the MHRA. You've you've got the FDA, and they've never been more famous. They're obviously preoccupied with vaccines right now. But why is it that they haven't licensed this for use in the states? What is it? This difference between Americans and Europeans that means they can't have this drug? Yeah, I don't think there's anything fundamentally different between Europeans and Americans, but the regulators certainly take a different approach. I, I want to tread carefully here in my comments. But I think it's fair to say that the bar that the FDA sets is very high 
And I am one of those who would argue that although we are all committed to the importance of safety and efficacy for drugs, we need to be realistic when we're dealing with ultra rare diseases. And, you know, for example, executing double blind randomized controlled trials with sufficient numbers to have a well powered study is extraordinarily difficult to do in a disease like Neiman Pick type C, where the birth incidence is around one in 100,000. To assemble a cohort of 40 or 50 patients takes a great deal of time. And particularly when the disease is so heterogeneous, to assemble cohorts for an intervention in a control group that are well-matched is also very challenging. So I think that's one issue that has to be borne in mind. The FDA has a long track record of being very slow to approve agents which are approved elsewhere. Uh, Let me give you an example. As a child neurologist, I now use bigabitrin quite frequently to manage epileptic spasms in infants. That drug was approved in most of the world for at least a decade before the FDA approved it here. Part of the problem has been they will not, or at least traditionally, have not accepted the results of studies performed outside the United States. They feel it's important that they have access to all the data in a study from its initiation. And I I can certainly understand their point of view, but I think realistically, for the benefit of children and adults who suffer from these diseases, we should treat all data as precious and irreplaceable and take it all into account. And my experience, at least, has been that the EMA has been a little bit more flexible in that respect. In the case of Miglustat, they provided, and I don't know if I'm using the correct regulatory terminology, but what was essentially a conditional approval for the drug, they required a registry to be set up so that over a long period of time, its efficacy and more particularly its safety could be monitored. I think that's a very good compromise, and that's something for which I and others have been arguing and are even at this moment arguing before the FDA, that that's an alternative approach, which I think needs to be considered when we're dealing with ultra rare, progressive and lethal diseases. And I have the feeling that the the EMEA does an approach which is called risk-benefit analysis. They look for the side effects and adverse events. And if they are tolerable, they may argue it's a value of, for the patient to have even a small effect with a, a low level of evidence. Yeah. What we're really talking about is tolerance for risk, or if you like, the benefit-risk ratio. And uh, certainly in Neiman Pick Type C, there are a number of agents that are being studied, and every drug has adverse effects, but they're relatively mild when one puts it in the context of a relentlessly progressive neurodegenerative disease. And I think that uh, the community, certainly in the United States and and internationally, has come together to express these viewpoints to the regulators. And I'm hoping we'll be successful in conveying that. You know, if, if I can come back to the issue of regulation in the United States, it sometimes feels as if the bar is different for cancer, for example. If you look at the approval of drugs for cancers, oftentimes the Benefit in terms of survival, which is the outcome most commonly used, is really quite small, but that's felt to be beneficial by clinicians and patients, and so the FDA has given approval. But it seems that the bar, at least to my perception, is much higher for the ultra-rare diseases we're talking about, and I think we have to continue to advocate very strongly to ensure that, that patients are going to have access to drugs under suitable controls. I know the journal's doing more work with the FDA, so perhaps in future we'll get someone on to 
to defend or you know explain their position you mentioned other treatments there and that's obviously the reason we're talking today um arimaclomal is the subject of the most recent study uh, i mean what is that and, and how does it work yeah that's a completely different approach and it's new for lysosomal starch disorder arimaclomal is a small molecule and it activates genetically Hitchhock proteins, especially Hitchhock protein 70. And in the basic science, the influence of Hitchhock proteins on lysosomal dysfunction is it's first studied in ASMD deficient mice in fibroblasts. And the positive effect of Hitchhock proteins is to stabilize membrane function in lysosomes to uh, improve folding of lysosomal proteins. And these are all basic issues of NPC. And so this uh, Danish company, Offerzyme, especially the head of the company, uh, Thomas Kierkegaard, they investigated this on a basic level for NPC. And they see a positive cellular effect and, and then also on the animal model. And, and I suppose that brings you to you know, this this study. It's a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled study. Mark, you were just saying how hard those are. It's basically the gold standard for trial design. We know these trials are really hard in IMD, but you you did it. So what, what did you do and, and what did you find? Well, uh, basically we used an outcome measure which had been validated in advance. Uh, Wakin and I both took part in those studies which is the five-domain NPC clinical severity score. This was a a simplification, if you will, of the full 17-domain score that had been developed at the National Institutes of Health about a decade ago. The trial design was approved in advance, of course, as is always the case with the FDA. And the score on the five-domain NPC clinical severity scale was the primary outcome measure. There are a number of secondary outcome measures, including the 17-domain scale, some other clinical scales, as well as some biomarker studies. And essentially what was found, patients were randomized two to one to receive aramoclamol versus standard care. Because meglustat is the standard of care for most of the world, patients were permitted to continue on a stable dose of meglustat, although not all patients were taking it. And then the FDA pre-specified a number of sub-analyses specifically to look at patients four and older because we know it's very difficult to gauge neurologic progression in the youngest children. They also asked for a sub-analysis looking at the patients taking Meglustat to see if there was some interaction at that level. Uh, Subsequently, post hoc, they also asked the sponsors to look at genetic effects, and particularly patients who had double null mutations, which would be expected to have a much worse outcome because they're associated with absence of the protein. And uh, essentially what was found after careful analysis, there was a statistically significant difference in the rate of progression between the placebo control group and the intervention group in favor of the intervention group. Those effects were stronger when one performed sub-analyses in the children four and older and in those taking meglustat. And in fact, the patients taking meglustat and aramoclamol had essentially no progression during the first year. So the conclusions that could be drawn were that there did not seem to be any unfavorable interactions between meglustat and aramoclamol. Secondly, although the study wasn't designed to look at this, one could certainly posit that there may have been some synergistic interaction. 
uh, certainly there was nothing antagonistic. And the other point I should mention is there were no unexpected signals of toxicity. This seems to be a very well-tolerated drug. And that separation between the groups has continued for another 24 months of follow-up, which has also been recently published. I mean, you've chosen some of your words very carefully there, because obviously we both know this hasn't now been approved for use in the States. I mean, maybe that's a, a conversation for another time. But certainly on the back of these two studies, you're talking about the use of Evermeclomol. You're talking about Meglostat as being standard of care. Are you going for you in, in Europe? Does, are you able to say what you would definitively treat your patients with on the basis of this? Yeah, I think NPC, since the metabolic defect cannot be completely corrected by one therapy, drugs are needed to partially correct a metabolic defect. And so we, we have to puzzle the therapy, I think. Microstat corrects the metabolic uh, storage of glycosphingolipids and arimoclomol may correct uh, protein folding and stabilizes lysosomal membrane functions. And I certainly think that other therapies can also add so that we have a combination therapy in the end as a definitive treatment for this disorder. And Mark, obviously, it's slightly different for you working in a country that hasn't has approved neither of these drugs. But yes. I mean, given given the choice, what, what would you be doing for your patients? Well, I can tell you what I advise them is that I advise patients to take Meglustat if they can get it. The situation in the United States is you can prescribe any drug which is approved for any indication. But if you're prescribing it for an indication which is not included in the label, then insurance may not pay for it. Now, it turns out with the publications we have recently, the insurance companies have actually tended to pay for this drug, at least for the time being. So generally speaking, we can get that. The other options now for patients in 2021 are to participate either in clinical trials or expanded access programs. So when I'm having the discussion with newly diagnosed patients or even patients I've been following for some time, I will suggest trying Meglustat uh, to see if they can get it and then offer them participation either in the Aramoclamol Expanded Access Program, which is continuing for the time being, or tell them about other currently active clinical trials. There is a trial for intravenous cyclodextrin, which is another type of therapy we haven't spoken about today. There are also trials ongoing in Europe and the United States for N-acetyl-L-leucine, which is being studied as a symptomatic treatment, not as disease-modifying therapy, but for its effect on ataxia, which is another interesting story. So there are quite a lot of options, but I agree completely with Eugen, and I make the same point to parents. We don't have any individual therapy which is curative, but by using combinations of medications which have different mechanisms of action, we would hope to be able to find a combination which is tolerated by the patient and which has the maximum beneficial effect while we're waiting for more definitive therapy. And, uh, you know, maybe one day that will be gene therapy. Certainly there are groups working on that. But even gene therapy is not necessarily the whole answer for diseases like this if they are diagnosed when they're symptomatic, because those patients already have a burden of disease which needs to be managed, and even correcting the gene defect will not necessarily reverse that. I think it's interesting. I was going to ask about uh, the other treatments around. It sounds like there's some other things perhaps we'll be able to talk about in future, as long as you publish in our journal, um, <laughs> which would be, be nice. I mean, are, are there, is there enzyme replacement within NPC, or is, it, is that not happened? 
No, because the, the, the two gene products are not enzymes. The primary gene product, the MPC1 protein, as mentioned, is an integral membrane protein. It isn't an enzyme. It seems to act in the transport of macromolecules out of the lysosome, possibly by an effect on folding the lysosome and allowing budding, as opposed to just being a, a channel or a traditional transporter. The MPC2 protein is much smaller and unlike the MPC1 protein, it is potentially transducible. So a transplant strategy, which has been used in a couple of cases, has a, a reasonable theoretical basis, but it's not an enzyme. And so far, for the very, very small number of patients involved, no one has proposed purifying and attempting to replace the enzyme. And certainly animal studies suggest that there doesn't seem to be a mechanism by which that normal protein or the wild type protein can be imported into the mutated cell to correct the defect. And I suppose the other problem is if you're going to have a gene therapy and you're only able to pick people up once they're symptomatic is you need to get some sort of screening in place. Would you be able to screen for this any other way than through XM or genome sequencing? The answer is yes, absolutely. And there is actually a, a group in the United States called the Firefly Foundation, which was founded by a mother, Pam Andrews, and is a very dedicated group who are promoting newborn screening because it turns out that initially measuring oxysterols, uh, which are a, a very sensitive biomarker for this disease, was proposed as a newborn screen. It may be actually that the next metabolites down the pathway, which are a certain species of bile acids, which seem to be more stable and more sensitive in the newborn, will probably be the way to go. But the short answer is yes. There is a biochemical newborn screening strategy, which is viable. And this is being tested in a program called Screen Plus in the New York area that Melissa Wasserstein from Albert Einstein is running with NIH funding. And NPC is one of a group of lysosomal diseases which are being screened for in this pilot program. So we'll soon know if it's able to detect a patient. Now, the, the challenge for this sort of disease is that with a birth incidence estimated at one in 100,000, you have to do a lot of screening to be sure that you can actually detect a true positive. But uh, Yeah, and it seems to me that this approach, early diagnosis, is, is very important. We know from family studies that even treatment in the younger, less affected uh, sibling, the treatment outcome is much better than in the, in the symptomatic one. Well, you're going to have to, to get your act together in the States because you shouldn't really screen for something you're not going to treat. So you kind of need to approve your treatments then, don't you? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent point. I do think it's an important point about newborn screening generally. And, and again, this is probably the subject for, for many other podcasts talking about the, you know, the Wilson-Jungner criteria and needing a certain birth incidence as well as having an available therapy. I would argue, and, and I, I'm sure Eugen has had this discussion with parents too, that having talked to many families who have multiple affected children, I have yet to find a family who would disagree that having known the diagnosis at the time of the birth of their first affected child would have been very valuable information for them, even without having an approved therapy. In other words, you can empower the family to make informed decisions about their family planning on the basis of newborn screening. Yes, ideally, you should have a therapy that permits early effective intervention. But I think there's another benefit that's sometimes forgotten in these diseases. And uh, I think we've all seen families, whether it's two 
three, even four affected children with these terrible diseases. And if the parents had known the diagnosis soon after the birth of their first child, then they, I think, would have made very different decisions. That's certainly the discussion I've had with many parents. So I agree having an effective therapy which should be implemented soon is a very important part of newborn screening, but I don't think it's the whole story. I mean, there's so much more to sort of talk about there, but as you say, I think that's something for another time. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking with both of you today. If you'd like to read these papers, then please go to our website and search for Neiman Pixie Treatment and Miglostat or Aromaclomal. And uh, do take a look at the Visual Abstracts page to see a summary of the Miglostat study. I know, Mark, you're going to appear in a forthcoming podcast, but it's not there yet. But if you'd like to listen to more from us, do just search for JMD Podcast wherever you like to listen. Uh, Mark and Eugen, thank you again for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.